Hello, and welcome to today's Institute for Healthcare Improvements Author in the Conference Call. My name is Amber, and I will be your conference operator for today's call. Right now, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session, and instructions on how to participate will follow at that time. As a reminder, this call is being recorded. If you should need operator assistance at any time, please press star zero on your touchtone phone. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's call, Dr. Chuck Kylo. Dr. Kylo is CEO of Greenfield Health in Portland, Oregon, a fellow with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, and a practicing internist. Dr. Kylo, you may go ahead. Thank you, Amber, and greetings, everybody. Welcome to Author in the Room, a monthly program sponsored by JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. My name is Chuck Kylo, as Amber stated, and I'll be your moderator for today's call. Uh, it's a delight to have you uh, on the call with us today. As you know, Author in the Room calls are designed to translate new knowledge, research, as is published in the new JAMA article, into actionable steps that we can use collectively to improve our clinical practice and patient care. Author in the Room occurs on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 p.m. Eastern time, with the next call being on Wednesday, May 16th at this time. Uh, and the topic of that call, the article, is Sumatriptan Naproxen for Acute Treatment of Migraine by Jan Brandis and colleagues, and that occurs in the April 4th uh, edition of JAMA. So please feel free to join us for that call. Uh, today, our featured uh, author is Dr. Peter Bach and his article, Computed Tomography Screening and Lung Cancer Outcomes, which occurred in the March 7th, uh, 2007 issue of JAMA. Uh, Dr. Bach is a physician and epidemiologist and an associate attending physician at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. Uh, uh, Peter re received his bachelor's degree in English from Harvard College and his MD from University of Minnesota. He subsequently completed his clinical training in internal medicine and then pulmonary and critical care at Johns, Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore. Uh, Dr. Bach's research focuses on how patterns of cancer treatment vary, particularly for patients with lung cancer, and how this variation relates to disparities in healthcare. His studies have been published in uh, many uh, major journals, including JAMA. Uh, Peter also serves as an ex external advisor to the Grady Center for the Reduction of Health Disparities at Emory University, in addition to a number of other capacities. Welcome, Peter. Thank you very much, Chuck. Thank um, you. Go ahead. Yeah, just one more thing, Peter, and then we'll, we'll, we'll come right back to you. Um, as moderator, it's my job to help focus the discussion on the application of Dr. Bach's uh, research with the goal of driving performance improvement uh, based on this article. The purpose of author in the room is for you to hear directly from the article, from the author, in this case, Dr. Bach, uh, and uh, for us to collectively work on how we translate the paper uh, the implications of the paper into our clinical practice. The hour will proceed as follows. Dr. Bach will spend approximately 10 minutes summarizing his findings. I will take just a few more minutes to draw out some of the implications for the real-world practice setting and set the stage for us to take your questions and answers. I just want to stress how important it is uh, your participation is in these calls. Uh, this really is a wonderful forum for us to discuss the article and the topic in general with the, with the author, in this case, Dr. Bach, by hearing directly from Dr. Bach. Uh, your uh, personal experience in this regard and your clinical practice is pertinent, so we ask you to both contribute uh, 
your experience in this uh, area, as well as to ask questions from Dr. Buck. One note, this call is being recorded and will be made available on both the IHI and JAMA websites uh, as podcasts, so please see those websites for additional details. Uh, uh, the press may be present on the call in a background basis only, uh, just so folks are aware of that. So let's get started. Again, let me introduce Dr. Bach, who will provide an uh, overview of this article. Dr. Bach? Thanks very much, Chuck, and thank you all for taking the time to talk to me about this article. Uh, one disclosure for CME, I will be discussing the use of the CT scanner for screening purposes. This is, constitutes an off-label use of the CT scanner. CT scanners are only labeled indications for diagnostic purposes. But let me back up a little bit before our study to talk about the purpose of screening tests, what is known about lung cancer screening, what was known before we did our study, and what we know now. Uh, so that the sort of reasoning behind the way we structured our analysis and structured our discussion uh, makes some sense. Now, first of all, I think we're all aware that the purpose of screening tests in cancer and other diseases is to intercept disease before it causes illness or death, and has to be that it intercepts disease at a critical point that natural history can be altered. And a classic counterexample for this is the uh, testing of Huntington's disease, although knowing in the advance that Huntington's disease may occur, uh, given that we have very few ways of altering its prognosis in any meaningful way, screening for it wouldn't be logical from a clinical perspective, although from an ethical and family planning perspective and other sorts of social reasons, it might be quite appropriate. Uh, so it is critical that screening works by intercepting disease before it becomes clinically apparent at a point where the natural history can be altered. Now, lung cancer screening, because it's such a huge public health problem, has been of interest for a very long time. There were decades ago multiple randomized studies trying to determine whether or not imaging or sputum cytology or both could be used to screen for lung cancer. Collectively, these studies all had about the same set of unfortunate or disappointing results that when you screen for lung cancer with chest x-ray or chest x-ray with sputum cytology, it is quite possible to find early lung cancers in the sense that you find small growths in the lung that histologically appear to be cancer that we would all classify as early stage and that can be removed through surgical resection. But those interventions and the discovery of additional cancers, and we know they're additional because in the randomized studies, that groups exposed to more screening tests had more cancers found than the ones exposed to less screening tests. In the randomized studies, finding these cancers and removing them didn't affect the number of people who died of lung cancer. And in fact, in the two randomized studies looking exclusively at chest x-ray, the interception of early cancers, more cancers through screening, did not reduce the number of advanced cancers that appeared in the group that was screened. They had the same number of advanced cancers as those who were screened less intensively. And so these were very disappointing results, but they led to a uniform recommendation that screening with chest x-ray and sputum cytology in this case were not recommended because they didn't affect the likelihood that somebody would die of lung cancer or develop advanced disease from lung cancer. Now, in recent years, beginning at the end of last decade, a lot of very exciting work came out of some superb investigator shops looking at CT screening. And this very compelling work demonstrated for several years now, one very exciting finding, which was that most of the cancers found by CT were, when you screen people, were early stage. In fact, the, the predominance, you heard numbers as high as 60 and 70, and in some cases, 80% of all cancers discovered with CT screening were early stage. And recently, as late as last year, there was a major study that reported that 
when you remove these early cancers with lobectomy or other surgical interventions, the disease-specific survival is spectacular, very, very high, numbers as high as 90% within the first five years. And so these studies conducted in multiple centers suggested that CT would be very, very good at finding early cancers and that their prognosis of those cancers is very good. But the real question is, so what? And I mean this in the, in the positive sense, you know, how does this translate into benefits for patients given the high sensitivity of CT for these early cancers? And so we aim to address that question. It is the logical next question, and we were well aware of the fact that the chest X-ray studies had the same pattern of findings. If you look at them in isolation and ask simply if chest X-ray finds more early cancers, it does, just like CT. And if you ask simply, is the survival of these early detected cancers excellent, it was. Far better than reported survival rates from lung cancer in the absence of screening. So we knew that that could fool us, that just looking at those surrogate markers of benefit could lead us to the incorrect conclusion that CT screening was beneficial when in fact it could be not beneficial and we had this prior history of this chest x-ray experience to convince us that this was a real possibility. So what we did was we developed some statistical models to predict the likelihood that people had various lung cancer events. And I won't belabor this point because some of it's highly technical but we have a series of publications on it for those of you with the interest Essentially, the models are logistic regressions or time-to-event regressions. They're correlation analyses, if you will, which predict for each person, based on their age and smoking history and occupational history, what their likelihood is of getting lung cancer. We developed these analyzing large cancer prevention studies and further validated them analyzing other cancer prevention and screening studies, as well as some large epidemiologic cohorts. And we showed in multiple studies that we could take somebody's age and smoking history and occupational history and predict with a fair degree of accuracy how likely they were to be diagnosed with lung cancer in the absence of screening and how likely they were to die of lung cancer uh, in the absence of screening. And we showed this, we validated the mortality model in four separate analyses in the incidence model and three separate analyses and then the NCI further validated our incidence model. So we took these models we had developed that we were quite confident could predict accurately the likelihood of events in the absence of screening, and we applied them to individuals in three studies of CT screening where everyone had been screened. And we took those individuals, we took their smoking history that they reported at the time they entered the studies, and we took their ages and their sexes, and we predicted the likelihood they'd be diagnosed with lung cancer and the likelihood they'd die of lung cancer, as well as some intermediate endpoints, the likelihood that they would have surgery for lung cancer in the absence of screening and the likelihood that they'd be diagnosed with advanced lung cancer in the absence of screening. And we did that to replicate what was done in the studies of chest X-ray. And just to refresh everyone's memory, those studies showed that chest X-ray increased the rate of diagnosis and the rate of surgery but didn't decrease the rate of advanced cancers or deaths from lung cancer. So when we applied the models to the cohorts and followed the patients to these events, uh, we found that CT looked a lot like chest X-ray, but maybe worse. And the reason I say worse is that chest X-ray increased the rate of lung cancer diagnosis by about 50% with annual screening. CT appeared to increase the rate of lung cancer diagnosis by about 300%. Chest X-ray roughly doubled the frequency of surgeries done for early lung cancers that were discovered, CT appeared to increase by tenfold the number of surgeries that were done for early lung cancers. 
And so those were magnificently larger effects of CT. And then the question is, given that added sensitivity, the far greater rate of treatment, does it translate into a benefit? And we were unable to detect any reduction in advanced cancers amongst the people who are screened or any reduction in deaths from lung cancer amongst the people who are screened. And so, in fact, all four outcomes we looked like are thematically consistent with the studies of chest X-ray, although the potential consequences, the excess diagnosis and excess treatment, appeared to be magnified. So one, one might look at this set of results and say, well, this doesn't make any sense. How could this be? If you're finding so many more cancers and you're intercepting them when they're early and you're treating so many poor people, how is it that the frequency of advanced cancers is not reduced or how is it that the rate of death is not reduced? One possibility is that our study isn't adequately designed to detect benefits, and it's certainly possible the studies are relatively small. The extent of follow-up only stretches out to five years for the mortality endpoint and only about four and a half for the diagnostic endpoint. So it could be that if we waited longer, we would see a benefit. Now, people argued that with the chest X-ray studies for about a decade, but we now have 20 years of follow-up with the chest X-ray studies showing that there was no reduction in mortality. Uh, due to the early detection and due to, from chest X-ray and the excess treatment. Another possibility is this overdiagnosis hypothesis. And although we can't test this directly, this is a model of lung cancer that would fit our data, specifically that what CT detects, these multiple small nodules, pose relatively little threat in terms of disease and very unlikely to progress and cause illness. Uh, and, but meanwhile, the cancers that move quite rapidly are ones that CT fails to detect simply because the interval between the CTs is too long or perhaps because aggressive lung cancers don't appear as small isolated nodules that are resectable before they become aggressive and widespread. In either case, that is a potential theory explaining our results, but it doesn't affect our results that the theory is one, only one of many. So the real question, or one question would be, what do we do with these results? Uh, at one level, I can say we should do nothing with these results. Uh, at another, I could say that these results are very suggestive and consistent with what we've known for a long time about radiologic imaging with, uh, for, CT, pardon me, for lung cancer detection. Given that the chest X-ray studies were all negative and demonstrated that we were uncovering a reservoir of cancers that didn't seem to have a future of causing illness or death, and that CT is simply a more sensitive or more high-powered chest X-ray, there was every reason to believe that CT would be as ineffective as chest X-ray was in screening. And that should lead us to the conclusion that we have yet to find evidence in support of CT screening, but we have a long history of evidence that does not favor imaging as an approach to lung cancer screening, and so we probably should not be offering this modality. Now, this is certainly not the last word. The National Cancer Institute, in collaboration with Akron, has launched a very large randomized trial comparing chest X-ray screening to CT screening, knowing that chest X-ray screening uh, in the past has been demonstrated to not have a benefit, but that is currently under reevaluation in the PLCO trial. And that trial, the, this is called the National Lung Screening Trial, will provide a far more definitive estimate of the impact of CT screening on lung cancer mortality reduction. And it has, it's not only larger, it has more follow-up built in and far more rigor because it has a human randomized control arm, not a synthetic comparator. There's also a similar consortium of European sites 
examining this question through the use of the randomized design where the control is not chest x-ray but usual care. And that study, too, should start to give us some more answers than we have right now. But I would argue that if you take the evidence at its face, uh, we have very, very little information. In fact, we have no evidence that should drive us to take healthy asymptomatic individuals and subject them to a CT scan to see if they have lung cancer. But we have a fairly good train of logic and evidence suggesting that it may not be an appropriate approach to the management of a healthy asymptomatic patients uh, to go looking for something when it seems from the evidence from both chest x-ray and now our study that uh, we don't know what it is that we will find and we certainly don't know if removing it will help people's health. I think I'll pause there, Chuck, if I can, and then we can go on to the next part of the conversation. Great. Peter, that was excellent. And I appreciate both the summary of the article, but you're uh, contextualizing it within a larger issue of uh, screening for these types of uh, difficult to detect, uh, you know, early stage cancers in and of itself, which is a challenge for us. So we now want to uh, to uh, turn from, you know, these research findings into what does this mean for our clinical practice, changes that we can make, those of us who are in the clinic day in and day out, uh, to our practices to better incorporate this information. This is a challenging area because it doesn't lend itself so much to traditional improvement methodologies where uh, we, we have a, an article that comes out with what we would think would be pretty hard science in the way we diagnose or treat something and then we go about using improvement methodologies such as the PDSA cycle the model for improvement to make, uh, to drive those improvements into practice. That, in fact, is the intent of author in the room calls. On the other hand, we do get into many, many interesting issues like this. And again, Peter provided a much larger context for us. There was a recent article, and Peter alluded to it, that suggested that uh, CT scans uh, uh, could be used to screen for lung cancer. And I know some people began to move in that direction pretty quickly after that study. And Peter's study seems to uh, contradict that uh, to some degree. But nonetheless, there are many other issues from an improvement perspective that we should be considering. Articles like this often make me step back and think about the larger subject matter of uh, um, of the article, in this case, the prevention of lung cancer in and of itself. I think we do know from a cost-effectiveness perspective that if we were to compare this sort of screening with taking the same amount of money that would cost for this kind of screening and using it for very aggressive smoking cessation programs, that the cost-effectiveness of smoking cessation would probably far exceed these kinds of screening endeavors. But those are the kinds of things I think we now have the opportunity to ask Dr. Bach about. And those are the kinds of things that I am interested in, not just this particular article, but how do we think about uh, the whole issue of uh, lung cancer prevention. So Peter, uh, as we get ready to take people's calls, and for those who want to, uh, to uh, uh, get in the queue, uh, you can get ready to do so with your questions. Peter, uh, how do we think about that uh, when we're talking about such screening tests? The use of, you know, uh, the money that it would take to uh, perform these CT scans versus other public health sorts of interventions. Well, I think let me touch on one other comment you made because I want to clarify how important the study last fall was um, and because you mentioned that our study contradicted it and I don't think that's, that's quite right, um, although it's thematically consistent, I think. Sure. Uh, the findings that came from the IL crap 
group are arguably revolutionary. The ability to find these small nodules, to work them up, if you will, in a way that reduces the number of biopsies, they have an extraordinarily high success rate in the sense that by the time they decide to biopsy a patient, it's quite likely that they'll document histologic lung cancer. And they have single-handedly motivated the lung cancer prevention community towards studying this problem much more intensively. I think they are to be credited for the launch of the randomized trial, frankly. So I give them tremendous credit across the board in terms of their savvy clinically and also their uh, ability to disseminate what they believe is a productive improvement in the use of a new technology. But at the same time, uh, what they have shown to date, this is a natural progression of events in all discovery processes, were surrogate endpoints, and we have further extended the endpoints that were examined. They found that you can find many early stage cancers, and when you remove them, the survival is excellent. Those are surrogates of the true outcome you care about, which is reduction in death. And so we, tr we followed that through to the next question. This is a logical chain of events. We replicated their findings. We found mostly early cancers. We replicated their survival finding. We had very, very long, excellent disease-specific survival. I believe it was 94% in four years of early-stage cancers, but we didn't translate it into a mortality benefit. And so it, it's not a contradiction, if you will. At best, it's a clarification of the implications of a series of very exciting studies done by really highly qualified investigators. Um, the issue of cost-effectiveness, there's a short answer and a long answer. I, let me focus on the short one first. It is too early to talk about cost-effectiveness when effectiveness is not established. In the case of lung cancer screening, our estimates from our paper is that it has zero effect on mortality. Now, I hope that that ends up being wrong and that the National Lung Screening Trial ends up demonstrating that there is a reduction in mortality associated with CT screening. If that's true, then we do have to start thinking about, as a society, who we would screen, how much it would cost, what the benefits would be. Would it, in fact, be more cost-effective than, let's say, an aggressive smoking cessation program, particularly one financed by increased cigarette taxes, would be quite cost-effective. But uh, I think it's too early to worry about that. I can assure you that the math will be more favorable if CT screening is effective, if we focus on exclusively high-risk patients, uh, but we, don't, we haven't gotten to that level yet where we've demonstrated that there's any effect, at which point the cost effectiveness is uh, zero. So um, I, uh, when you're in your clinic seeing patients, uh, they come in and uh, they are probably mostly unaware of the research that you're doing. Have you had anybody coming in uh, asking for lung cancer screening since this has been in the press now for a little bit of time? Well, so I worked at a comprehensive cancer center, so it's much more common to have patients arrive with a CD that has a results of a screening test already that's already been performed. Right. But I can convey what I, I've been asked the question a number of times, what should I say what, or what would I say if I were in a clinic where people were asking me for this rather than appearing with a small non-calcified nodule or often many small non-calcified nodules. Uh, and I think the, the first step probably would be a step of reassurance. Uh, we have up on the web a tool at mskcc.org, and this is not a plug, but it's instead just a, a piece of advice. We also have this in a JNCI article from 2003, a simple way of figuring out for most patients what their 10-year risk is of lung cancer. This is the models we used for prediction in our estimates. And through that, most patients can find out that actually their risk of lung cancer is surprisingly low. 
most people who consider themselves to have a smoking history, for example, would come out at less than 1% risk of lung cancer in 10 years. And that often provides patients a lot of assurance. Lung cancer is in the news. Unfortunately, we've lost a number of high-profile people to the disease recently, and it's also just a dread illness for a variety of reasons. And the public tends to overestimate their risks of those diseases based on how often they hear about it in the news rather than on epidemiologic statistics. No surprise, but we as physicians sit in the interface of that, and so we can often reassure patients that they shouldn't be worried about lung cancer screening when their risk is so low. They're far better off focusing on lifestyle modifications that would improve their health overall, whether it's increased exercise or reduction of obesity, cessation of smoking, wearing seatbelts, or any of the other number of public health interventions that are proven. Excellent. Well, uh, as we ask Amber to get people in line for questions, can you just repeat the website again so people can write that down? I went to it after you and I spoke before. I think it is a, a nice tool. Uh, well, if you go to www.mskcc.org and there's a professionals tab, and then you can click to lung cancer and you'll see there's a risk prediction tool. Uh, and we can also, after this call, we can get a direct link. Um, there's a link we had an article, not to plug a prior piece, but we have an article from the JNCI in 2003 that includes a description of this tool and also the website and also a little table in the appendix that's three by three that could just be clipped, if you will, and that will a little bit more crudely approximate people's risk. Fantastic. Appreciate that. Uh, Amber? Thank you. At this time, we will conduct a question and answer session. If you have a question, please press zero, then the one key on your touchtone phone. This will place you into queue. One by one, your lines will be open so that you may each ask your question. So again, that's zero, one on your touchtone phone. If your question has already been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, please press zero, then the two key. Due to the fact that there are multiple listeners on several lines, your line will be announced by institution only. So if you have a question, please state your name as you ask your question, and please make sure that your line is not muted. We will pause one moment to allow questions to dial in. Again, that's zero, one on your touchtone phone. There are currently no questions waiting at this time. Great. Uh, we would like to hear from folks. So if you feel, uh, if you have something you'd like to ask Dr. Bach or just make a comment, uh, we know that this is an area that can be confusing uh, in terms of the, uh, the literature that has come out recently. So uh, feel free to chime in both your experience and or your questions. So, Peter, uh, as we alluded to in the last question, you know, most people hear about, most of our patients hear about this research through the media, uh, and uh, I think that's probably true of most doctors as well. Frequently, these studies show up, you know, in your local paper more quickly than, you know, JAMA gets to your front door. Uh, and uh, uh, at other times, when it does get to your front door, we read the abstracts and maybe the last paragraph in the article, and we sort of, we sort of move on. Uh, rarely do people sort of read the, the whole article. Um, how should we prepare uh, in terms of routes of dissemination for articles like this and topics like this? Have you seen anybody sort of engaging the media in a different type of conversation so that it, it changes the way uh, such information gets, uh, gets talked about in the media? Well, it's, it's a great question, and it's actually a very vexing part of the whole process. And uh, without being too personal, um, the, you know, the, the track I'm on professionally is an academic track. I get promoted by uh, my, essentially the number of publications I have and the profile of those publications and 
if I do enough of those, I get an office with a window and stuff like that. And so it, it's a natural academic track to focus on the publication, but the reality is research like this does have implications for patients. It also has implications for clinical trial design and has implications for the broader prevention effort. And so those of us who are working in areas like this where, and certainly once you are lucky enough to get an article in JAMA, you are pretty confident that at least some of the press will notice it, uh, you do have to do some preparation and you have to work very hard to figure out what you want the press to say. Uh, and that's extremely hard to do. It, it's hard enough uh, in a 4,000 or 3,000 word article to get your ideas out there to focus on nuances. But in this case, we had an interesting situation. Uh, the article that you alluded to that came out at the end of 2006 had been somewhat misinterpreted by the press and misinterpreted as not preliminary data or suggestive data using a surrogate outcome, but often referred to as proof that lung cancer screening worked. And it certainly wasn't the intent of the investigators to have the, their message sort of over-distilled like this but we suddenly felt like we were in an odd situation where we, could, we had a public health obligation to clarify how little was known about this technology so that doctors weren't in the odd position of saying to patients, no, this isn't proven when patients were demanding the service, and also to somewhat stem the flow of what we saw. I live in New York City, and I saw this all over Long Island and Westchester, ads going up and billboards going up offering CT screening when there's a genuine risk that it could be more harmful than beneficial. So we did actually go to some trouble to try and distill down our message while pointing out the nuances of the study and its limitations at the same time. And it's, it's very difficult to do. And it, you, know, you obviously want people to read your work, uh, but at the same time you know that it is possible. Half of what I've learned, I learn first on the radio, and then when I'm interested, I go look it up. But uh, I have the leisure time that some practicing clinicians don't have to take that second step. This is a particularly, I think, interesting area because some would be concerned that uh, a screening test uh, uh, in the realm of lung cancer would help, uh, would not necessarily help, but might uh, allow people, as this is in many ways a lifestyle problem, smoking might give people the comfort, well, if I just keep smoking, then uh, it's not as much a problem because I'll just get my CT scan every now and again. And it will decrease the emphasis on primary prevention, unlike colon cancer screening, mammography, uh, prostate cancer screening, or, or things like that. Has there been much discussion in the community about those types of issues? Well, what you're referring to is, has a technical term called moral hazard, and uh, the, I think people speculate about it exactly in this way, and uh, people speculated actually that the breakthroughs with the highly an active antiretroviral therapy would make people less cautious about uh, sexual encounters they're having uh, that could transmit HIV. And I think this is always a concern in the public health community. Uh, the the issue here has got to be one around messaging, uh, particularly in the case of smoking. It's not as if lung cancer is the only thing that smoking causes. But uh, I think, you know, there too we should be careful about the messages we send. And certainly the issue of false assurance uh, is a very serious one that we have to be very cautious about. I think all of us who, are, who have practiced medicine have been burned at least once 
by assuring a patient of something that ended up being incorrect. And if we hadn't been, we just haven't been in practice long enough. And so I think we have to be extraordinarily cautious that we don't know what we think we do in many cases. And in the case of CT screening for lung cancer, I think at this point what we know is that uh, there's no reason to believe it's going to work, that it's going to provide these assurances, it's going to intercept the cancers that are going to kill people. And so we have to be very careful that people don't walk away from a normal CT scan and think they're fine, or even worse, as you, impl as you imply, that they continue to smoke or take up smoking again now that we have some way of stopping the cancer dead in its tracks. And we, and we certainly have seen a resurgence, uh, re resurgence of smoking amongst, uh, I think, younger age groups for, uh, you know, whatever complex social reasons that is uh, that, that leads to that. Uh, much like, and I don't know that these, these two things are very different, but we have also seen more lax sexual habits in those uh, who are at risk for HIV uh, at the same time. And whether that's because we become collectively numb or because there are therapies that we think that can help solve our problems uh, if, uh, if they arise, we don't know, but it is, they are interesting social phenomena. I agree. In your work of uh, within uh, disparities, which is a primary interest of yours, uh, quite different from this particular research. Um, uh, what kinds of things are happening there around lung cancer prevention? What, what are the best things that you're seeing, which would primarily be smoking cessation, since that's where the real where the real data is? Because uh, I would imagine that these types of studies would not necessarily be a threat, but as we talked about, if there was a, a you know a positive, although um, potentially not really really strong positive. Uh, mortality, uh, a benefit from screening, it would really cause a significant, I think, uh, a social dilemma uh, in terms of the cost effectiveness, particularly with the majority of smokers being in low, uh, lower socioeconomic strata. Yeah, Any I, thoughts on that? Sure. Um, yeah, and I don't think, you know, given that the uncertainty around CT screening, I think it may be easier in a way to answer that question as regards other aspects of cancer prevention because we certainly do have proven interventions. Uh, the data surrounding colonoscopy or at least the family of colon cancer screening tests is quite strong. And the pap smear is, is probably the greatest success we've ever had in the war on cancer. And if you look in poor communities and minority communities, these tests are not getting there. Uh, the pap smear probably could have virtually eradicated the cervical can deaths from cervical cancer had we gotten into poor communities and particularly black communities, but now we're appreciating that Native American and Hispanic communities have also been left behind. But had we gotten there 20 years ago uh, and been ready for the sort of infrastructure that's needed to follow up abnormal results, I think we would see mortality rates far below 3,700 deaths a year, which is where they're hovering right now. Uh, and I think, you know, there's a lot of sort of social overlay, as you've pointed out. The pap smear actually, as it's conducted, is highly cost ineffective. Uh, that's partially or in large part due to the two people getting too many pap smears when they've had a series of normal results and people sort of over pap testing people. But meanwhile, uh, we're not getting these sorts of interventions into the poor communities where we should. And we have no infrastructure to make that happen, really. We don't have a system, let's say, of paying either more for or providing additional infrastructure payments to doctors who practice in poor communities. And some of my other work, as well as a lot of other people, has focused on this problem, that the facilities and the doctors who practice in these communities just don't have the same resource base or infrastructure base to pull on or to rely on or the referral network nearby that uh, people like who practice in places where I do right now on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. So it, 
these are major issues in the cancer prevention space. They're major issues in the therapeutic space as well. And certainly people like me who think about the health system or health services delivery worry that we are nowhere close to getting the maximum gains out of the scientific progress we're making because we have delivery failure and sometimes quite profound delivery failure. In the case of cancer, the burden that the minority, minorities play, uh, face uh, in the U.S. is just vastly greater than is faced by upper middle class and middle class white Americans, and the resources are distributed in the opposite direction. Right, right. Uh, important observations. Uh, Amber, anybody in the queue? There are no questions waiting at this time. As a reminder, if you would like to ask a question or make a comment on the presentation, please press zero one on your touchtone phone. Well, uh, Peter, bringing your last, uh, I think, observation uh, back uh, sort of into the realm of this article. Now, when the uh, when the article appeared last fall, 2006, um, that uh, seemed to suggest uh, you know the the positive benefit of screening. What sort of discipline, and, and I've, you, you have alluded to the fact that if we move too quickly around new studies like that to incorporate new studies like that, uh, we may be, uh, uh, you know, uh, caught with, a, with, a, with uh, a reversal uh, sometime in the next year or two years as additional research comes out. And I think we've seen some of that flip-flopping uh, occur increasingly over the last couple of years. We've certainly, I think, I think we've seen it with some of the drugs as the FDA begins to approve things more quickly under pressure to do so. Uh, drugs coming out and then being and then and then being withdrawn from the marketplace. And we have studies where a study will come out. Most recently, there's you know the Women's Health Initiative has now come back out and is reversing some of their recommendations on on estrogen uh, on hormonal replacement therapy. Uh, as the research gets uh, refined and uh, better honed. What discipline should we have around interpreting such studies? Our desire is to decrease the amount of time uh, that it takes to get new science into practice. That's what these calls are all about. But if we rush too quickly in that regard, we'll probably uh, find ourselves sort of swinging back and forth. Uh, any thoughts or observations, uh, recommendations in that regard? Well, that, that, that really is the million, or in this case, uh, $2.2 trillion question. Uh, and I don't, I, I don't have a lot of insight. I think it's fair to summarize scientific progress as characterized by fits and starts and reversals and changes in path. And very rarely does a single study answer a question that needs to be answered or is vital to clinical decision making. I do have a couple of heuristics um, that I use, uh, and one of them is that I am far more shy about primary prevention and early detection strategies than I am about therapeutic strategies. And I work in a comprehensive cancer center, so I often see patients who are quite ill where time is short and the, the threats are very real and often undefined to their health. But uh, my heuristic is that if I'm faced with a patient where the question is, should I do this test, they feel fine. They're, in fact, not a patient. They're a healthy subject sitting in my office, uh, or I encounter them in the hospital, and, or they, uh, but there might be some way of screening them for something. I'm far more cautious about doing that, about sort of subjecting them to the first line of medical evaluation when there's nothing triggering my my need to do that, and I do the, that. That stance comes from you know a very hardline view of the evidence base, 
and also a very hard-line read of the first do-no-harm kind of approach to medicine. I believe that most people who are healthy probably don't have much wrong with them, uh, and if we go digging, we could easily cause harm. Uh, that doesn't go for proven screening tests. It certainly doesn't go for things like mammography or the pap test or the colon cancer screening. Uh, I think the PSA test probably sits in the middle of that, but, uh, but I do think that is a useful way to think about it. And certainly with these early detection interventions or screening tests, one of the things that would push me into the other camp is, is really ironclad evidence that it affects patient outcomes and what patients care about. So things like mortality or whether or not they will die of a disease or develop an advanced form of the disease that's symptomatic. If I could have evidence that I can prevent that, and there is evidence in colon cancer and cervical cancer, et cetera, uh, then that's something that we should push for. Uh, the reliance on surrogate endpoints is a more complicated one. And I think you know, things like improved survival or just detection alone is a complicated one. I think we've got multiple cases where that has steered us off in the wrong direction, and so I'd be I'm much more cautious about that sort of thing. There's also a sort of Bayesian, if you will, or a probabilistic universe kind of way of looking at this, which, is the, which would drive my heuristic also. I already mentioned that even in lung cancer, people who think they're at risk are often at quite low risk from a quantitative perspective. The reality is if you have a healthy patient in front of you, the likelihood that they have any particular serious illness coming down the pike I think is relatively low. It's totally different from when you're standing in a critical care unit or up on a hospital floor doing a consult for a patient who's symptomatic. They almost for sure have something wrong with them, something abnormal. And as a result, uh, it, it makes me far more inclined to pursue strategies that will help me figure out what's going on and pursue uh, interventions that may or may not be proven, but I think are promising. Excellent. The you know I I think that uh, when you're thinking about those strategies, and certainly as you as you state, when we're sitting here in clinic with one patient in front of us, and they are uh, for all intents and purposes otherwise healthy, uh, certainly the cost of neck the cost effectiveness of lifestyle interventions far exceeds any other intervention. Uh, and yet uh, we are frequently uh, uh, least capable of driving people towards those lifestyle interventions as opposed to doing more, much more expensive screening and other sorts of testing. I think something we all need to really think uh, and hard, hard about and ponder uh, significantly given, given the $2.2 trillion that we're currently spending and what some would say the marginal life, uh, uh, life extension uh, uh, that it has provided for us. Uh, Amber, any additional calls in the queue? Once again, as a reminder, if you would like to ask a question, please press zero one on your touchtone phone. There are no questions currently in queue. We are interested in if, if any have sort of worked with the press around this issue to try to change the perception of uh, what these studies mean in their communities. It would be interesting for us to hear from you to get some uh, uh, some of your input in that regard. Peter, what are some of the other important take-homes from the articles? Is there anything that uh, we haven't discussed so far that you uh, have a desire to talk about? Well, I, I think, you know, it's along the lines of what you've just said, you know, we, we tried as hard as we could to emphasize with the press and hope that it came out in most cases that this is a preliminary look. It gives in more insight than we had. Nobody had asked if mortality was reduced, but nevertheless, it's a small study. It uses kind of a speculative method with these comparative models that we validated, but can't be convinced they're right. Uh, there is, you know, 
we tried very hard to caution people that this was not the final word on this technology, and certainly that we should not do something like stop the randomized trial because it's proven already that CT doesn't work or something like that. And I think some people were saying that, and that you know was certainly not a translation we had sought. Uh, but this is, I would be interested, there, there is this sense in clinical medicine that we're all really under the gun to have knowledge that we just don't have. Um, I, will, I will echo uh, a question that one reporter asked me, and I answered it, and I'm actually glad to not see it in print in the way I phrased it, but I've had some time to think about it. One reporter said, you know, well, doesn't this mean that doctors and patients should decide whether or not CT screening is right for them? And that's certainly, I think, the stance that a lot of major organizations take. And if I can go out on a limb here for a second, and I said I'm a strict evidentiary kind of person, I don't think that that, of the interpretations of our study, I think that is the one that is not appropriate. And the reason is because as doctors, when we send people for these tests, we cannot determine whether or not they have, the patients have benefited. We know from our study that about 100 people, I think it was 99 additional people had lung cancer surgery and about 100 additional people were diagnosed with early lung cancer. And I think each of us as clinicians, if we had sent a patient for a CT and had them come back with some very small nodule that was histologic adenocarcinoma, we sent them for a lobectomy, they did great, I think we would pat ourselves on the backs, understandably, because we would have felt as if we did them some benefit. But in our study, following 3,200 patients over about 10,000 person years, we weren't able to detect that these 100 additional surgeries provided any benefit, that there was a reduction of even one death from lung cancer in this study. Now, as I mentioned, maybe if we followed people for longer, we could observe some benefit, but I assure you that no amount of follow-up would suggest that we had saved 100 lives from doing these additional 100 procedures. So it... The frame of reference is important. If clinicians treating patients one by one, which is the nature of what we do, cannot figure these things out, and patients are expected to somehow know magically whether or not these population-based interventions work by intuition or what they hear, that just doesn't seem plausible. And so I would argue that the one recommendation we shouldn't be making is, oh, just go figure this out with your doctor, or in our case, go figure it out with your patient and may use your best judgment based, let's say, on your, the extent of fear people have about a particular illness. Some people would say, if it's there, I want it out. Other people would say, I don't want to know. Uh, and I, I don't think those are relevant to a public health intervention where the goal is to reduce deaths from lung cancer. I think we have to judge the evidence for what it is, determine whether or not we have evidence that it's beneficial or not, and uh, in this case, our study, which is not gold standard evidence, but it is the best evidence we have right now, it's the only study looking at mortality, suggests that CT screening is not beneficial and probably harmful because of the number of the vast number of excess treatment surgeries it triggers. We really have to look at this and say, we shouldn't be offering this test until we're convinced that it's going to help people and that this isn't a sort of patient-doctor level decision. And I wish we had better evidence. I wish we had more complete evidence. We will soon. The large randomized trial should be out by 09 or maybe 2010, depending on how long it takes to determine that there either is an effect or not. But meanwhile, I think this sort of belief in sort of the physician-patient autonomy, which is absolutely critical to informed decision-making, 
presupposes that there's information that could lead to one decision or another. And I think that in this case, that doesn't pertain. The experience base doesn't make sense. The patient intuition doesn't make sense. We have to rely on what we have epidemiologically. Really great observations. Uh, Amber, anyone in queue? There are no questions currently waiting. Okay. Um, well, Chuck, I'll just try and say more and more controversial things until somebody finally comes in. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good strategy. <laughs> I, I, I suspect it's because of the, in many ways, in what we might call the negative nature of the study that uh, we're not used to doing lung cancer screening, so this is uh, this is not going to necessarily change behavior, change our practice. So that may be uh, leading to the paucity of comments or questions. Don't know. Uh, I don't feel compelled to go to the end of the hour. We have about 10 minutes left. Um, if there's nobody in the queue, we can go ahead and draw the uh, draw the call to a close. Uh, do you have any final comments, uh, Peter? Uh, no, except in thank you very much for inviting me to talk about this. It's really it was an exciting project. We were at it for about five years. We were glad it it gave us some insight into what I think is an important public health issue, and uh, it was certainly great to get into a journal like JAMA. Yeah, and it's it's a wonderful study. Peter and I had a, some delightful conversations before this call uh, in preparation for it, and I really appreciate his preparation and the uh, the research that he has done to help to inform us in this really critical area. So thank you, Dr. Bach, for your participation. As a reminder, Author in the Room is a monthly program that takes place on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 p.m. Eastern time. Our next uh, discussion takes place on uh, Wednesday, May 16th with the article being Sumatriptan Naproxen for Acute Treatment of Migraine by Dr. Jan Brandis and colleagues. And that occurs uh, appears in the April 4th uh, issue of JAMA. Uh, Author in the Rome is sponsored by both the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. It is an interactive conference call, at least it's supposed to be an interactive conference call. Designed to accelerate changes that can improve uh, clinical care. And Peter, I've enjoyed our interaction today. I hope it's been good for you too. I very much enjoyed it. Thanks for your participation, and uh, thanks to everybody out there for joining in with us today. Good day. This concludes today's teleconference. To end your call, simply hang up your phone. <laughs>